0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please open your Bibles and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, please get one in the back uh, section of the chairs. There's Bibles on tables there. If you don't have a Bible, please take that and keep it as your own. We'll throw the page numbers up here on the screen so you can follow along. But let me open up with this statement. Gentlemen, have you ever dreamed about becoming a hero? Have you ever dreamed about facing impossible odds? with undaunted courage, you against a great foe. Muscles rippling under skin of bronze, there you stand on the battlefield. And at the end of the battle, all across the battlefield, there lay your vanquished foes. There you stand, bloody, Injured, but not acting like it. The conqueror. If you're anything like me, you've dreamed about that many times. What I want to talk to you about today is a story like that. You see, when we were children... We wanted to believe that those kind of stories were true, and then as we grew into adulthood, we realized that they were just tales spun by creative imaginations that gave us entertainment for an hour or two as we watched the television, and then we got back to reality. But here's the truth this morning. What I want to talk to you about is an historical account of some actual stories of outlandish odds which were conquered by mighty warriors courageous men we're going to take this from first chronicles chapter 11 and it's a list of david's mighty men let me give you the quick setup david is now king of israel Remember, David himself is the great warrior. Young lad slays the giant. David is the great warrior and around him, because of who David was and the kind of leader that he was, great men, great warriors flocked to him and were called up by His example. And there is a list of them in First Chronicles chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. And what I want to do is I want to read verses 10 down to the middle of verse 18. And then we're going to talk about these mighty men of David and about you. First Chronicles chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. And I read... These are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is an account of David's mighty men. Jeshobim, a Hachmonite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. Guys, that Kind of pumping you up a little bit there. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. How would you like to be called the son of Dodo, right? At least the guy was tough. He was with David at Pasdamon when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley and the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam when the army of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem, and David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David." Stop there. Oh, to be one of the mighty men of King David. Imagine, gentlemen, your name on the list there. Well, I have some good news, some incredible news for you. And here it is. This is not just a story about David and his mighty men. It's a story for all of us here. Because the truth is this. There is still a king that sits on David's throne. He has an eternal kingdom and His name is Jesus Christ. He sits on the throne of David and He will forever sit on the throne of David. And here is what I know. I know, and I can show you why I believe this. I believe that He keeps a list of mighty men and women in His kingdom that in His eyes are great In their faith. And here's how I know that. There's a counterpart to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the New Testament. And it's Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's another list. Like the list here in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. There's a list of mighty men and women of faith that God inspired to be written down. He kept the list, wanted us to know that He had the list, so He put it in His Word. He's the same God today, yesterday, and forever. And so that God is the God that still does that today. He takes noteworthy Notice of those who are mighty men and women of faith in his kingdom. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to take a look at the list of David's mighty men, three men or groups of people in particular, and I want to draw out three principles that made them mighty warriors, mighty men of David And then I want to take that principle and show you that it has a counterpart in the spiritual realm, that the physical principle that made those men mighty on David's list, that same principle applied in a spiritual way will make us mighty for our King, Jesus Christ, in the battle that is raging all around us. You see, right after Hebrews chapter 11, when that list of names is given, those noteworthy men and women in the eyes of God, here's how chapter 12 begins of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, therefore, the author writes, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these mighty men and women of faith that were listed in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that Right there is a strong call for mighty men and women of God to rise up and perform great exploits in His kingdom. So we're going to look at the physical principle that made David's men mighty and the counterpart in the spiritual realm. First of all, Verse eleven. Our first mighty man here is Jeshobim. Everybody say that Jeshobim. That's a mouthful in that. Verse eleven. This is an account of David's mighty men. Jeshobim, a Hackmanite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against three hundred, whom he killed at one time. Here's the first truth I want to draw out for your attention. This is true of everybody on every warrior on David's list of mighty men. Every one of them had to have a learned skill in the use of their weapon. Right? Isn't that true of a warrior? You have to have a learned skill in your warcraft. True of all on the list True of Jeshu B.M., let me just ask a question. Do you think this account in First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 11, when Jeshu B.M. went out and faced 300 men, do you think that was the first time he had a spear in his hand? Anybody? No. It was an appendage. It was a part of his body. He had become very skilled in the use of his warcraft, the use of that weapon. I did some study when I first preached on this about the warriors of antiquity. I found some interesting facts. I'm going to give a couple of those to you. Just to emphasize how important the use of their weapons and the learning of their warcraft was to them. There was a group of islands called the boleras and warriors that came from those islands that were considered the greatest stone slingers of history. Use of the slingshot. And it says in those ancient documents that they could, in general, in other words, regularly hit their mark at 600 feet with their slingshot. That's two football fields end to end. The way that they learned to use their weapons gives an indication on why they were so proficient. Here was the process. Their father would take his son. He would craft a slingshot for him. And he would take a piece of bread and he would take him out in the field and he would put that piece of bread on a post or on a rock and he would, depending upon how old his child was, pace his son back, draw a line and say to his son, I want you to hit the bread. Now here's the motivation. You don't eat until you hit the bread. That's a pretty good motivation. And Time and time again until it became muscle memory and they could hit with precision, those young men learned the use of their weapon. Let's go now to the spiritual counterpart. First of all, is there still a battle? And what are our weapons? Yeah, there's a battle. I'm just going to read you a verse from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a battle raging, a spiritual battle. You cannot see it, but it's around you all the time. And you're a part of it. If you're a follower of Christ, you are engaged in that battle. Whether or not you're gaining victory or you are getting beat up, but you're in the battle. And what are your weapons of warfare? A few verses down in Ephesians 6, Paul writes, verses 17 and 18, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. Paul here identifies two offensive weapons. First is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right here is a primary weapon in the spiritual battle that you face day in and day out. And what you need to do to get proficient as a warrior, you need to learn the use of this weapon. You need to get skillful in the use of this weapon. It needs to be in your hand a lot. It needs to be in your mind a lot. You need to be looking at it, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, getting to understand it in grand scope, getting to understand it in close introspection. You need to learn the use of your weapon and the only way you can do that is by practice, is by being in it, is by study, is by constant use. As I think about David, I would consider him the greatest warrior of ancient history. I think about David and how he learned the use of his weapons. Here's how I believe he learned them in solitude. He was a shepherd over his father's sheep and would go out into the barren wilderness and have to protect those sheep and over and over and over again out in the wilderness with no one watching. He became an expert in the use of that slingshot. I think about Jesus Christ, obviously the great Greatest warrior of human history in the spiritual realm. And how did Jesus learn the use of His weaponry? He was with His Father all the time. He would get into the Word and study the Word. Just think about the duel in the desert with the devil in Mark cha- Matthew chapter 4. What does He do every time the enemy comes at Him? He says, it is written. He pulls out His sword. He uses His sword and He knows how to use it. He uses it with exact precision. We have to learn the use of our weapon, the Word of God, and secondly, prayer. Prayer is a mighty weapon of warfare. Prayer is omnipotent because it connects us with an omnipotent God to whom nothing is impossible And the thing about prayer is you can do it as a brand new believer. It's easy for anyone to do. And yet you can grow for an entire lifetime in the lessons of prayer. In the depth of what it means to pray in faith and see God move in omnipotent ways. Lessons that you can learn throughout your life. You want to be mighty in the kingdom of God then learn the use of your weapons. Learn the use of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and learn the use of prayer. Secondly, look at verses 12 to 14. Let's pull out another principle of David's mighty men here. And next to him, next to jeshobiam Among the 30 men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. He was with David at Pasdamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. The next characteristic here I want to draw out from... Eliezer's life is his loyalty to the king. His loyalty to the king. Now, you could read this two ways. I'm going to read it, explain it both ways. Either way works with the principle, but let me tell you the two possible ways to read this. First of all, you could read it as it said, as if it said that Eliezer here stood alone in this field while the rest of the Israelites' army fled, and he refused to give any ground to the enemy, and by himself he stood in that field full of barley, and he defended it and laid waste to the Philistine forces. That's one way. Here's the second way. Look at the beginning of verse 13. It says that he, Eleazar, was with David at Pasdamon when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. Here's a second way to read it. David was in the field too. David and Eleazar. And if you read it like that, that's how I read it. That means this. Eleazar refused to walk away from his king. He refused to give an inch of ground and walk away from his king. He stood by his king, come what may, even if it meant death. He was loyal to his king. Let me take that now to the spiritual battlefield and talk about the principle and how that applies. And by the way, it applies either way. Either Eleazar was there with David and would not give an inch of ground away from David, or he was just fighting for his king but refused to give up the field and move away and give ground to the enemy. Either way, the principle works, and the principle here is courageous loyalty. And so what he did was he refused to give ground. What does that look like in the spiritual realm? I think we can answer it like this. How do you give ground to the enemy in the spiritual realm? Here's how you do it. Through compromise. Through compromise. You engage in a little bit of sin, and it's a step away from Jesus. And you engage in a little bit more sin, and it's a step away from Jesus. And a little bit more sin, and it's a step away from Jesus. Little steps of compromise, instead of saying, locked right beside him, you put some distance between you and him, you give some ground to the enemy through compromise. And I don't know what that looks like for you, I don't know what your temptations are. You could put, depending on how many people we talk to, we all have our own lists and the way that the enemy comes at us and the things that we struggle with, we could one way we could describe it is criticizing others. We Criticize other people, it's like taking a step away from the enemy. What about watching what you shouldn't watch, listening what you shouldn't listen to? A little sin, a little step away from the enemy. What about gossip? A little step away from the enemy. Let me make it real personal. It's tax season. How are you filling out your tax forms? You're doing it with Integrity? making the little tweaking a little bit so the bottom line's a little better for you? A little deceit there, a little sin, a little compromise, a little step away from the enemy? See, <clears throat> that is one aspect to loyalty. You see, loyalty has both a positive and a negative side. The negative side is this. Don't give in to sin. But there's a positive side to loyalty as well. And the positive side to loyalty is proactive. The positive side to loyalty is moving forward. The positive side to loyalty, instead of giving ground, is taking ground for Christ. That's the positive side. I like the way 2 Samuel gives the story. There's another account of the same list of David's mighty men. And Eliezer is highlighted. It's almost verbatim in 2 Samuel. I'm not going to have you turn there. But there's a phrase in there that I like that I think just kind of brings out the point of the positive side of loyalty, and that is this. It says that what Eleazar did when they fled was he rose and struck down. He rose and struck down. There's a proactive statement. There's a initiative, there's a moving forward, there's not just not giving ground, there is an activity there, an energy, a militancy to take ground. How do you do that in the spiritual realm? Again, you could put a lot of things on the list. I'll give you just a couple. Here's one way. Love your neighbors with the love of Jesus. Get to know them. Do what you can to find out what their needs are and genuinely, compassionately care about them and meet their needs. Do what you can to show the love of Jesus and share the truth of Jesus that can save them for eternity. You know what happens when you're doing that? You're taking ground. That's the positive side of loyalty. You're taking ground for the enemy. How about your spiritual gifts? There's another way. What are your spiritual gifts? Discover what they are and use them. Because when you're using a grace gift, that's the Spirit of God working in you, doing things of eternal value that have eternal results. That's taking ground from the enemy. That's moving forward proactively. So loyalty has both a negative side, has a positive side. And what I would call all of that is just holiness. You see, holiness is not primarily defined by what you don't do. I used to think that many years ago, that it was defined by what I didn't listen to and what I didn't say and what I didn't drink. But that's not a good definition of holiness at all because holiness is couched in the terms of who God is. It says in Scripture, God says, be holy for I am holy. Man, is God God static? Is God just... One that doesn't give ground? No. God's holiness is proactive. God's holiness is moving forward. He's always on the charge, right? He's always taking ground. He's kicking in the gates of the enemy. That's what He's about doing. So holiness is proactive. So don't give ground and take ground. That's what it means to be loyal in the spiritual realm. Let me take you to the third truth. I love this one. Oh man, do I love this one! Verse fifteen to eighteen. Three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam when the army of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then. In the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. And they took it and they brought it to David. Do you understand what's happening here? Let me give you the setup. David is at the rock at the cave of Adulam. Hold up in a stronghold. That's what it says in verse 15 and verse 16. And where are the Philistines? Where's the enemy forces? They're at Bethlehem. There's a garrison there. Guess what Bethlehem was to David? That was his hometown. That's where David, the shepherd boy, grew up, and every day he would go out to care for his father's sheep, and he would lead them out, and he'd stop by that well, and he'd draw some cool water from the well to refresh himself, and he would take the sheep out to pasture, and he'd come in after a period of guarding over the sheep, and he'd come by that well in that barren wasteland, and he would slake his thirst at that well at the gate of his hometown. But now, the Philistines and their garrison is encamped around that. Ladies and gentlemen, in that part of the world, it is really a dry, arid place, and water sources become the hub of activity. And they were, I guarantee you, and you can read it explicitly in the statement here, they were encamped around that well. And look at what happens here. David is longing for home. That's what's going on in David's heart. It's not about thirst. It's about him longing for home. And the enemy has taken his home. It's taken that village of Bethlehem and he's longing and the cry of his heart breaks out of his lips in that cave and he says, oh, that someone would give me a drink from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And when that cry issued forth from his lips, three men heard it. I can just picture the scene, and them looking at one another and say, did you hear that? Did you hear what the king wanted? I'm in. Are you in? I'm in. I'm in. Let's go. And those three men, I'm guessing they didn't tell anybody else because no one else went. They by themselves said, we're going to fulfill the desire of our King, we heard it, now we're going to fulfill it. And here's what they did. They fought their way, not out of, but into the garrison of the Philistines. And fought their way right up to the well. Just picture that scene. I mean, as soon as any fighting started, there would have been a commotion. And all soldiers would have been on deck with their weapons. And here are three guys fighting their way to the well. And what does one of them have to do when he gets to the well? How do you get water out of a well? You got to put the bucket down in the well. So he had to stop what he was doing while two warriors fought off the enemy while their comrade-in-arms put the bucket down, drew the water up, and then somehow contain it and fight their way back out of the garrison, back to the rock at the cave of Adullam so they could give their king the drink that they heard him say he was longing for. Folks, what is that? Let me tell you what it is. It is a love For their king. It is a deep, deep love for their king. They weren't, listen carefully, they were not fighting to save David's life. They were fighting to quench his thirst, to meet his desire. And they heard that desire and they said, I'm willing to give my life for that. I'm willing to give my life for that. Here's what love for the King looks like. A deep love for the King looks like. It's you, as a follower of Jesus, getting to know the heart of Christ, listening closely, leaning into His breast, getting to understand what it is that He really cares about and asking Him to reveal that to you. And when you hear it, saying this, I'll give my life for that. I'll give the rest of my days to see that fulfilled because I know that my King Jesus desires that as one of his key heartbeats. And where do you find those? You find them right in here. He put them right in here so you and I could lean in. He doesn't just tell you openly. He wants you to go find him. He wants you to care about what they are and lean in and listen close and look and find out what the heartbeat of your king is and say, those are the things as he reveals them to you and what he'll do, he has a bunch of them, he'll reveal the ones that he wants you to give your life toward and then you say, I'm going to I'm gonna give my days toward that right there. I'm going to give my days to see that desire of my king realized that's a love for your king are you doing that am I doing that I trying to find out by close association and listening and looking and praying and saying oh Jesus what are your heartbeats for me that you want me to fulfill for you. All I want to do is do that so one day I can hear you say, well done, well done, well done. So let me end this with a call for warriors. And this is men and women. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, there's men and women on that list. Let me close with this call. David was an incredible leader. David knew how to motivate men. Listen, David knew how to motivate mighty men. That's who David was. And so just kind of step back at the whole scene of 1 Chronicles chapter 11 there and take this in. Look at how David motivated mighty men. He had a list. He had a group, a recognized, designated group of men who were noteworthy who were identified. Now just think about being a young boy in the nation of Israel during the days of King David's mighty men. What do you think you would have been doing at night Oh, going to sleep, dreaming, saying, one day that's going to be me. One day I'm going to be on the list. Or, Dad, read to me the story of B.M. again. Let me hear about Eleazar and Abishai. I want to hear about what those men did and dreaming about being one of the men on David's list. You see, David... I want you to see it closely. David had a list of 30 chiefs among his mighty men. You read them right there in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. What an honor to be on the list. But that's not all. There was a commander over the 30. His name was Abishai. In verses 20 and 21, you read about him. He was more renowned than the 30. It says that. It puts a scale on that. And then there was Benaiah, And here's what it says in verses 22 to 25, a couple phrases. He was a doer of great deeds. Let me give you two of them. One was he killed a giant Egyptian. This is a man like unto Goliath. And this giant Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's beam. A spear so large that it was like a beam. And here's what it says about Abishai. He took his staff. He took his staff. And he went to the battlefield. And he went up to this giant Egyptian. And he ripped the spear out of the Egyptian's hand. And he killed him with his own spear. Here's another exploit of that great man. He went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. And folks, he didn't have an Uzi to do it. He was a mighty man. But then there were the three distinguished warriors, verses 15 to 18 that we read about. And it says two or three times on the list, talking about these men of renown that were even over the 30, but it says they weren't included with the three. They weren't as renowned as the three. These three men that heard the heart of their king and battled in to the Philistine garrison to get some water and battle their way back out. You see, What inspired the list? Here's the point. What inspired this group of men to spring up called David's Mighty Men? Let me tell you what inspired it. One day, a little red-haired young man, David, was sent by his dad to go to the battlefield. Go take some bread and cheese to your big brothers who are fighting the battle. And so David shows up as the errand boy and when he arrives out steps Goliath. Belligerent Goliath that is defying God. And this young lad said, I'm going to shut that boy up. And he goes to the brook and he pulls out five smooth stones and he slips one into his tried and tested slingshot and scripture says he runs toward the battle line to meet Goliath and he lets go of one of those stones and he drives it into the skull of Goliath then he walks over to that vanquished enemy and he takes that massive sword and he removes Goliath's head and then just think about this he reaches down and he gets a handful of hair and he walks back to the Israelite battlefield army, carrying the head of his vanquished foe. Now, what do you think that did to the Israelite army? Man, that called them up. And what started was, as he became king, a list of mighty men that what? They wanted to be like David. So let's go to the spiritual battlefield. That was David the king who's our king. Who's our king? We serve the toughest warrior of history, past, present, and future. Jesus Christ, who did he take on? He took on all of the forces of hell itself. Single-handedly, he did it with a weapon called the cross, and he marched to the top of the hill, dragging that weapon to the top of the hill, and then he allowed himself to be nailed to that weapon, using it to swing the death blow to Satan and his forces and vanquish him, says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities Authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. That was his weapon. And he defeated Satan and all of his forces and hell and sin and death. That's the kind of king that we serve. Hello, that's the kind of king that I serve. And listen, he calls me up when I think about that. And I say, man, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to learn to battle the way he battled. I want to learn to vanquish the enemy. And his spirit can live in me toward the very same end. And so here's a call up. Men and women of Christ, here's a call up. Don't just get by. You're in a battle. Learn the use of your skill your weapon in the Word of God and prayer. Be loyal to your King. Don't give any ground, but take ground and then love your King so much where you take the time to find out what's close to His heart and then give your life for that. Give your life for that. And I'm convinced if you'll do that, your name's going to be on the list. Not that... You want it for your glory. I'm not saying that. You want Jesus to say, Well done. Well done. Well done. Would you please stand? Jesus, thank you for being the all conquering warrior that you are thank you for battling for me, for us what we could never battle giving your all in that battle and winning an absolute victory now I pray that you would help me help every believer in the sound of my voice called up by this to become men and women followers of Christ battling for Christ in this world for your glory to expand your kingdom to take ground from the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ I pray amen